memories and our evaluation of those memories are constantly being filtered through the passage of time and our own life experiences. So now, as an old woman looking back at over 60 years of memories of my father, the memories are certainly the same, but my evaluation of the relative significance of each memory and its place in the overall picture has shifted slightly. As I look back from the vantage point of many decades, some memories, previously not so prominent in my consciousness, now seem sharper and of greater significance. Twenty years ago, I would have said that the essence of the Rov's personality was the, it came to expression in his role as a teacher. I suspect he would have made the same assessment. He frequently described himself as a Malamid. He took pride in the term and stated that the Rabbono Shalom himself is referred to as Hamalame Torah Lamo Yisrael. Obviously, that description remains valid. However, looking back now, if I would have to find one word or phrase to describe the essence of the Rav, it would not be Malamid or Rebbe. I would give preference to a different term, Baal Emuna, a person of faith or belief. It was his Emuna which inspired him in his role of teacher of his generation. When we look back at the past, we are influenced in our evaluation of people and events by the fact that we already know how they play themselves out. And in that light, we judge the accomplishments of certain individuals. In retrospect, everything always appears very clear. In similar fashion, when most, speak, when most people speak of the Rav, their point of reference is the Rav of the 1950s, 60s, and later, who was world-renowned, respected and admired, influential and active in public affairs, acknowledged as the leader and spokesperson of a growing, educated, observant community. And so, they look back at his pioneering efforts to establish a Jewish day school in Boston and say, of course the Rav succeeded. The need was obvious. And given his reputation and influence, it is only logical that he would succeed. It could not have been otherwise. But there was no of course. It wasn't at all obvious and there was no logic dictating success. If anything, logic dictated failure. When my father came to Boston in December 1932, 
He was not referred to as the Rav. That came many decades later. The small and mostly elderly group of Hevershas members who welcomed him on the, at the train station saw before them a young, inexperienced man of 29 who did not speak English, who had not been a Magid Shia, who had not been the Rav of a Kehila, and who had not even been a rabbinic intern. As a newcomer, he had as yet no direct knowledge of the Jewish community in America. Yes, it was true that he stemmed from a family renowned for its learning, but Schusavos was not a very marketable commodity in Boston of those years. It was also true that he was rumored to be very capable, but that rumor had yet to be substantiated in Boston. And what did that young, very inexperienced man find in his first years in America? Decades later, when the Rub would reminisce about Boston of the 30s, he would always employ the same word, midbor. It was a midbor, a desert, he would say. Jewishly, there was nothing. No observant youth, no Torah education, no flourishing synagogues, no respect for learning or tradition. Most of the Rabbonim in Boston and the surrounding communities had long since abandoned hope that anything could be accomplished in this most trafe of Medinos. Some became cynical and embittered. Others led sad and lonely lives, forced to deal with congregants who neither understood nor appreciated them. Many of them could only look on as their own children became part of what was referred to as the lost generation. The natural and logical reaction of a young man steeped in learning who was suddenly thrust into this alien and hostile environment should have been, like that of many of his colleagues, to give up on the outside world, closet himself in the base medrash, and continue on a solitary path of learning and observance. But this young man was different, and his reaction to his new environment was different. This young man, like Avraham Avinu, saw things merachok, from a distance. I should interject here that my discussion of the concept of merachok is based on a beautiful drusha I heard from the Rav on Akedas Yitzchak. However, the interpretation I will propose of the second Pusik in the quotation, I did not hear from the Rav. So if you don't like it, don't blame the Rav.
ביום השלישי, וישא אברהם את עינו, וירס המקום מרחוק. ויאמר אברהם אל נערוב, שבו לכם פה עם החמור, ואני והנער נלכו עד כה, ונשתחווה ונשובה עליכם. On the third day, Avraham looked up and saw the place from a distance. And Avraham said to his attendants, Remain here with the donkey, and I and the lad will travel to that point. We will bow and we will return to you. What does it mean to see something merachok? It means that one is able to see far in the distance something not visible to the naked eye, something that most individuals are incapable of seeing. Merachok represents not present reality, but prophetic potential. Avraham Avinu was able to take his son to the Akeda because he could see Merachok. He had emuna, faith, that regardless of the commandment that he should sacrifice his son, somehow or other, the divine promise of ki b'yitzchaki kore would be fulfilled. Not only did he see the reality, but he envisaged potential. Potential based not on palpable evidence, but upon divine assurance in which he fervently believed. Reality was replaced by emuna. In almost every historical era since Avraham, there have been persons of faith who, despite the grim realities in which they were living, have been inspired by that same emuna, and whose paths through life have been inspired by the same merachok, a vision of the possibility of spiritual growth and development. The Rav was one of those individuals. He, too, was blessed with the capacity for emunah. His emunah consisted of his fervent belief in the divine assurance that the Torah was eternal, that it was always remain valid, and that Torah was relevant to all generations, to all places, and at all times. When the eternity and validity of Torah is a divine promise, then, instead of concentrating on current conditions, one views the spiritual landscape merachok, with an all-encompassing vision which sees far beyond the existing landmarks. And when the eternity of Torah is both the divine promise in which one believes and the vision with which one is inspired, then not only does one see differently, but one thinks differently as well. The logic one employs is faith-based, not fact-based. But being able to see Merachok is only the first step for the person of faith. 
Let us look again at the second pasuk. Vayoma Avraham el Naarav shvulachem po imachamor vaani vahanar neelcho adko v'noshuva alechem. We will proceed to that point. Seeing a vision will only get you to a certain point, but then you will get no further. Sitting placidly in a rocking chair and gazing contentedly upon an inspiring vision is, in the final analysis, meaningless. The fulfillment of the divine promise depends not only on human faith, but on human effort as well. If we truly believe in a vision, it is incumbent upon us to work for its fulfillment. If we do nothing, then it should be obvious, even to ourselves, that we are merely paying lip service to our vision but in truth, we really do not believe in it, How does one go about implementing a vision? The Pesach continues, We will return to you. We will not remain on the beautiful mountaintop in an isolated existence with a few kindred souls blissfully gazing at an unfulfilled vision and scornful of those below who do not see it. But on the contrary, we will come down from the mountain and return to you, return to the barren desert with its harsh conditions, and there, living and working among people who are unable as yet to see Merachok, we will engage in the long, arduous struggle to share our vision with others, slowly, one by one, and in the process, hopefully, to begin to change the reality, to begin to plant little green shoots in the barren desert. The person of faith proves his emuna by becoming the person of action. Propelled by that emuna, he persists in his efforts, and despite difficulties, disappointments, and disparagement, he continues on his course. V'nashuva alechem does not guarantee a victorious return and a hero's welcome. Rather, it involves a long, protracted struggle with no guarantees of success. But the struggle, as the Rav wrote in the 1950s, is itself a Kiddush Hashem. My father's efforts to establish a Jewish day school in Boston met with resistance from all segments of the community, from top to bottom. How did he react to this opposition? By persisting in his efforts. V'nashuva aleichem, we will return to you even when you don't want us. 
I have said that when my father came to Boston in 1932, he found a midbor. Nine years later, when he came to Yeshivas Rabbeinu Yitzhak Ochonon, what he found was certainly not a midbor. But it was not a flourishing institution either. Orthodoxy was very much on the defensive in those days. Most outside observers thought it would soon disappear from the scene entirely. Orthodox synagogues were struggling to maintain their existence in the older, decaying sections of the cities, while new conservative temples were being built in the expanding suburbs. Many an ambitious YU graduate, concerned for his professional future, opted to pursue his rabbinic studies not at REITs, but at JTS. Conservative Judaism, it seemed then, was the wave of the future. There were both national orthodox organizations and nominally orthodox synagogues throughout the country, which were in the process of making an uneasy peace with the issue of mixed seating in the synagogues. In private conversations with the Rav, more than one Rosh Yeshiva at Ritz voiced fears for the future of Torah in America. So here, too, a Balemuna, a person of faith, had to view the contemporary scene, Meirachok. Despite the grim statistics, despite the gloomy sociological analysis, despite all the discouraging facts on the ground, the young Rosh Yeshiva believed with a deep abiding faith that Torah learning and observance would not only survive, but would flourish. And here, too, he had to follow the directive of Vinoshuva Aleichem and engage in a vigorous struggle to alter the reality. I don't believe there was one person, even among his supporters, who really thought that he would succeed. His emuna eloquently expressed in his shiurim, drushes, lectures, and responsa, lifted morale, inspired Talmidim, and encouraged both national organizations and local shulin one by one to, re to resist and reverse the erosion of halachic standards. His long struggles slowly began to bear fruit, both locally and nationally. With time, the Rav was able to see success in many of his endeavors. Once, walking home with him one Yontif morning from the Maimonides Shul, I complained about how noisy the children had been during the davening. Doesn't it bother you, I asked him? He smiled and said, when I came to Boston, in Shul, I was a young man surrounded by old men. Now in Shul, I am an old man surrounded by children, and you want me to complain. 
Although gratified by the changes he was seeing, he never tried to facilitate those changes by lowering his standards or modifying his goals. Moreover, he remained a keen and objective observer of the mores of the community and his satisfaction with the successes which had been achieved did not blind him to the spiritual lacunae that remained in our community. An out-of-town acquaintance told me the following story. Sometime during the 70s, he happened to meet the Rob on a shuttle flight between Boston and New York. During the flight, he had the Rub as a captive audience, and he took full advantage of the opportunity. He spent the entire flight telling the Rub with great pride about the flourishing Jewish community in which he lived. The Shulin, the Stieblach, the day schools, the yeshivas, the kolalim, etc., etc. The Rub listened quietly and said little. As the plane began its descent into LaGuardia Airport, the Rub said, but there is one problem. The people in your community don't know that they are in Golis. If the Rub's Emunah motivated his actions, his ability to inspire others helped him achieve success. Not all whom he influenced came from traditional backgrounds. Not all even fully understood his vision, but they were somehow or other mesmerized by him and supported him ardently. The Rav was by nature a very tolerant person, and he was able to connect with many people of different backgrounds. Tolerant as he was, however, that tolerance never involved relaxing or compromising his religious standards. He was tolerant of people, but he was never tolerant of, I'm sorry, he was tolerant of people, but he was never tolerant of practices which violated halacha. Empathy and tolerance were integral parts of the Rub's personality, but they always found expression within the framework of halacha. In the winter of 1967, a former Talmud asked the Rav to meet with a member of his shul who had a personal halachic problem. The Rav agreed, provided that the gentleman would come to Mass General Hospital in Boston where he spent his days at the bedside of his dying wife. The visitor arrived on schedule. He and the Rub had a private conversation in a little sitting room, not far from my mother's room. After a fairly lengthy talk, the gentleman rose, shook hands warmly with the Rub, and took his leave. The Rav returned to his wife's room, and I escorted the visitor down the long hospital corridor. As I waited with him for the elevator, he said to me, Your father is a remarkable man. 
With this comment still ringing in my ears as I returned to my mother's room, I said to my father, so, I assume you found a solution for his problem. My father, looking very thoughtful and solemn, replied, no, I had to tell him there was no solution. The Rav had offered sympathy and understanding to such a degree that his visitor was visibly impressed and moved, but he could not offer a solution where halachically there was none. To do otherwise would distort Torah. It would deny its eternity and its validity. The Rav's emuna in the eternity of the Torah infused his teaching and motivated his actions throughout his life. Koamar Hashem Zachatila Chesednu Rayich Avas Kaluosayich Lechtech Acharai Bamidbor Be'eretz Lo Zarua. And that is how I remember my father. Thank you.